0: Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship programs. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. Family office world takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode, will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold, one, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Denise Illich today. Denise has been an integral part of Detroit's business and philanthropic communities for over 40 years. And as a dedicated business leader, a devoted community servant, a supporter of multiple charity causes, and just tireless advocate for women and children. Denise is the owner of the Illich Family Companies. She's also president of the Illich Enterprises. She previously served as president of Illich Holdings. From 2000 to 2004, a privately held business, that manage Little Caesars Enterprises, the Detroit Red Wings, the Detroit Tigers, Olympia Entertainment, and Olympia Development. Through her extensive involvement in various leadership roles within the diverse portfolio of Illich holding companies, she's developed a really broad range of business skills, including expertise in executing large-scale real estate developments. Denise has done more, and her family has done more for the city of Detroit arguably than anybody. And it's just wonderful. And on a personal note, I'm thrilled to talk to you because I consider you now a friend and it's just, it's wonderful to have you. So thank you for, uh, thank you for coming.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Ron. I've really been looking forward to this and thank you for that lovely introduction.
0: I actually had to cut the introduction a little bit short because <laughs> of what everything, you, no seriously, cause it's so much you've done um, and it's just unbelievably impressive. And there's so much I want to get on this podcast But I want to start, if I can, um, we met, you and I met because I chair and you're a member of Tiger 21. Can you just take a minute and talk about how did you get involved in Tiger 21 and why it's beneficial for you?
1: Well, I was uh, sitting in a meeting. In fact, it was a a former YPO uh, group. And that we had all decided to stay together, and I was commenting about how I wanted to learn more about investments and finances, and that I felt like I needed my PhD to kind of um, understand what's happening in my world because at the time uh, I had just lost my father, and it it was a uh, it put us into a completely different arena with respect to business and estate. Uh, issues and that kind of a thing. And a, a person, um, George McCronic, recommended, uh, he goes, you need to check out Tiger 21. And it has just been an unbelievably rewarding experience. Besides the family, or, or really, the they feel like family relationships. Now, it's funny I, I use that word. But besides the personal relationships that I've been able to enjoy, I've learned so much. Um, from others. It's like having your own personal board of directors, but each director is a leader and an expert in their own area. And it's wonderful to be able to learn from others. Tiger 21 also has wonderful programs. And I just kind of devour their resources, whether it's, you know, their conference meetings uh, or their shorter meetings. I think they've really adapted well to COVID and the use of Zoom. So for me, they're just a wealth of information and resources.
0: So Denise, let me ask you this, the creation of a family office and the evolution of one through the years, talk to me about that.
1: Well, um, you know, we started uh, seven years ago and, you know, everybody, my dad was alive, everybody was alive and we were operating our businesses and, so we started a family office, uh, more along the lines for administrative activities and, and some general advisory uh, services. But what's been interesting is um, since my dad uh, has died and you know, our estate has taken on a different complexion, the family office has evolved into offering uh, multiple services, many more services.
0: Got it. And how, how long ago did your father pass? Three years ago. Okay, so that leads me to my next question, which has to do with engaging future generations, because I would assume your dad was, um, you know, took control of most things. um, And now you've got the next generation. So can you talk to me about what he did and what you guys did to engage you and your siblings?
1: I I think what's really important for the success of a a family office is that everyone get engaged and not only G2 as I would refer to, but also to engage G3. And I think the most effective way to do that is to be very transparent and to share in decision-making and share in information. And so the more successful it is, um, the success to me is really based on empowering everyone. So everyone feels as though they've got skin in the game.
0: Got it. So which leads me to this question, and it's interesting because only 25% of family offices make it to the second generation and 10 make it to the third and five to the fourth. So the model itself really doesn't work as is. How do you build trust and transparency?
1: Uh, It's interesting because I think those stats are also quite similar for a family business. Um, I think you build trust by transparency. I think that the more open uh, you are with family members, the the more transparent you are with family members, the more you can increase trust. I think that if things are secretive or if somebody doesn't get the full information, what happens is we humans tend to fill in the blanks and those blanks aren't always right. And so for me, I find knowledge is power. And the more you can sit down with somebody and share the information, even when it's not great, even when there may be challenges, I find it very effective to also share in the challenges uh, to build trust.
0: So was the, was the transition difficult, uh, difficult maybe is the wrong word, but was it challenging? All of a sudden you had, you know, a patriarch who was an icon in, in Detroit and now the, the children are running the business was that a challenge?
1: I think it was really a challenge, at least for me. I can speak for myself personally. I think the hardest challenge, Ron, that sometimes people don't think about when they're putting their estate together is you're you're thrust from, we were thrust from, I was thrust from, my parents, the founders, my mother's still alive, but losing my dad, to kind of what I would say, quote, professional services. And so there's a lot of third parties around, a lot of, for lack of a better way to say it, strangers around. And it's a huge adjustment to start to have to interact with third parties, uh, non-family members, and, and those you know having a stake in uh, your assets and how they're spent and the preservation of them.
0: Now, you mentioned values. How do you share values in a family office? How does that work?
1: Well, I think that, you know, they should be articulated somewhere uh, where what your values are. And I think that uh, during the interviewing process, I think it's really important to hire those that share in your values. And then as you operate and execute in the family office, that those values are adhered to.
0: Interesting. And then moving from, you know, when your father founded the company to a family office or more professionally run, what's been the biggest difficulty or biggest challenge for that?
1: I'd say a couple challenges. I'd say the first is the adjustment. And I would sensitize any family office professional to not underestimate the personal aspect of loss and grief and transition. Uh, And then I think sharing information is second, and I think third is engaging all so that when you have multiple family members, each and every family member feels empowered and feels uh, represented by the family office.
0: Now, most family offices, uh, certainly the ones that I represent, have sold their company, they have a liquidity event, and then they start a family office but you still have a lot of operating businesses. So what, in your opinion, is the relevance of having, having these operating businesses while you're running your family office?
1: Well, they are part of our family, obviously. They are our businesses. We grew up in them. They continue to operate. You know, we feel that, obviously, they, they serve a, a good public purpose as well. And so it's almost, you know, we think it's important that they be independent, so that the family office is independent of the operating companies and vice versa. And that allows us then to grow both independently and benefit the family uh, as a whole.
0: Right. Um, So, you know, you're probably deluged with what I'll call service providers, people who are experts in the industry. So how do you juggle the internal investments versus having it go external, how how does that work?
1: I think that's a really good question and one that we are continuing to learn. I think that what I've observed so far, Ron, is that I think it's important to have a good balance between the two. I think it's a nice check and balance. Um, We certainly have an investment program within our family office. We're fairly new investors, but we have very bright people Uh, Assisting us with that, but I also think it's healthy to have some external investment as well.
0: So balancing has balancing been a challenge?
1: Uh, Balancing is a little bit of a challenge, but because as you indicated earlier, everyone has an opinion, and I've just yet to to find just one expert. I don't think anyone has the corner on investing, or you know that particular mousetrap. So I come from a place that I like to hear a lot of opinions and then kind of decipher. Which I think is best. And sometimes you hear common threads when you ask for multiple opinions. But I think we're still learning uh, the balance of it. I, I don't think it's wise to put all your eggs in one basket, whether it's inside the family office or outside the family office.
0: Now, you know, I've had an opportunity, the pleasure to get to know you. And I know education is a very important aspect of life for you. So, what is the importance of educational resources? when it comes to the family office?
1: I think that is critical. Uh, I think it makes the job easier of the family office professionals if the family members are as educated as possible. And of course, when you have different ages and different appetites, so to speak, uh, you're gonna have different educational levels. So I think it's absolutely critical that there be as many resources as possible for each and every family member uh, I also think it's great to be able to share in those resources and sometimes accompany another family member and then participate in a workshop or go visit, you know, five money managers in New York or, or you know, whatever activity uh, that's educational, but that it's shared, some individual and some shared.
0: So a lot of the family offices that we work with, talk when I say, what's the biggest challenge? They say the people, even though the people are the siblings. <laughs> When reporting to multiple members in a family office, what are the challenges with that? Because you've, how many siblings do you have?
1: Uh, I have six.
0: Okay. So you've got, there's seven people. Yeah, That's a lot. So when to report, and every one of you is probably wired a little bit differently, um, talk to me about the challenge and how you guys report to just all of the members in the family office with full transparency and at the same time, et cetera.
1: Well, I, how it's structured now is really my mother is the, is the lead. And so she really has the final word on many matters, um, but I know that she's working hard on involving everyone. And of course we all are members of the family office. And so um, I think it's, it takes a lot of finesse. I think that the person or people that run the family office I think uh, have to be very responsive to family members. Uh, I think it's no different than running a company or dealing with multiple personalities in a organization. Um, But each person is contributing financially to the family office and and as such, uh, each should be treated accordingly. And so I, I would say to family office professionals that I think it's worth the time and very important to take the time to get to know that family member What's important to them, establish a relationship with them, and then I think uh, everything else kind of falls into place. It's a lot easier when you when you have a personal relationship.
0: Sure, looking at it from the outside, uh, I'm in Chicago. Your family has done just an extraordinary job helping to rebuild a city, rebuild Detroit. Question I have for you is, why have you focused so much of your energy? on rebuilding Detroit? Did that come from your dad? Did that come from you guys? Why why focus so much on Detroit?
1: It really came from both my parents, my mother and my father. They both were born and raised in Detroit and they have always had a very, very strong commitment and affiliation to their community. Living through the 1967 riots, watching our city deteriorate, really impacted everybody. And each person deals with it in a different way. And and for them, um, they really wanted to make a commitment to bring back the city and um, have spent, you know all of their time as you indicated and money uh, doing that. And of course those values were instilled upon us. And you know, one of which is you support your community when your community supports you in your business you need to support your community in return.
0: So this was pretty much handed down from your parents. Yes. So now, and, and again, it's remarkable, you and Dan Gilbert, I mean, almost two families single handedly have rebuilt that city and it's remarkable, but I know how philanthropic you are personally and as a family, how do you guys decide which philanthropies to get involved in? Cause there's so many good ones.
1: Yes. Well, as you know, we're, the, we're seven of us and seven children. And so my Uh, parents, particularly my father, is always very uh, sensitive to children's issues, to sports. He was a very strong supporter of sponsorship programs in sports. And so we tend to um, choose issues that that we kind of felt ourselves. Uh, We also have a foundation in each one of our companies, and those companies kind of determine um, where we give money. And of course, for the sports teams, they're very, they're around kids and sports. Uh, so we have a lot of child-based issues.
0: And are there other areas of philanthropy that your family is focused on as a core?
1: I think I, no, I would say, um, I mean, there are a- always other issues, but I think they're really focused on sports And um, providing sports, I think that there's a feeling that there's a lot of positive in kids playing sports and being able to um, participate on team-oriented sports. And then of course, overall children's issues as well. You know, each of us individually have other areas that we may be interested in. Uh, I'm I'm very uh, interested in educational issues and, and advocacy for women. Uh, and women's issues. And each one of us has a little, you know, another area that we may be interested in to us personally.
0: So it seems like your parents really instilled in all seven of you the that, the importance of philanthropy. You know, one of the things I read about you, and I had no idea, I just found this out about a month ago. If you could take a minute, um, Rosa Parks. Yes.
1: Well, that was, it was so interesting, Ron. Um, you know, many years ago, my my dad and I were very close. And so he'd always share things with me. And he said to me, you know, he said, Denise, I got a call from Judge Damon Keith. And he's very close with Rosa Parks. And she's having a lot of issues. Um, she's not safe where she's living. And um, he said, you know, honey, I, I think I'm going to pay her rent and just take care of it. And I said, oh, wow, dad, that would be awesome. Well, fast forward multiple years till, till after he died, he never mentioned it again to me. And honestly, Ron, I forgot about it. And I didn't go back and say, well, are you, you know, how long was it for or anything like that? But when he died, it came out, uh, I don't know how it came out that he paid her rent until the day she died. He never brought it up to me again. And, and when I read that, I was just really struck because I had forgotten about it. And of course um, was just struck that, oh yes, that's right. So that's the kind of man he was, that's who he was. He would do things like that all the time and very quietly.
0: Yeah, what what tells me or shows me a lot, unfortunately I didn't have the opportunity to meet your dad, but the fact that he didn't um, you know, do a PR campaign or just let it known that he is doing this Many people would, and I think that just the highest form of charity is just to do this anonymously, and that's what your dad—that's how, that's how he was wired.
1: Yeah, he'd always say to us, like, kind of ad nauseum, um, "Don't brag, don't brag, don't don't be big on yourself." He said, "You know, your acts will speak volumes uh, if you're quiet, and people find out on their own."
0: That's interesting. So, you know, your dad—he's—he's he's completely self-made. What what did his parents do for a living?
1: His dad um, wa- worked at Chrysler in the plant, and his mom was a homemaker. She didn't speak English, and she didn't drive. She came from Yugoslavia, and so did his dad. He worked in uh, the Chrysler plant his whole life. And when my dad uh, was signed by the Tigers, uh, the Detroit Tigers, um, my, he was afraid to tell my grandfather because my grandfather said he was a bum, that that wasn't a real job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's really interesting. And um, so your dad then started and again, you you hear people, this is, uh, you, you know, he was comfortable if your grandfather worked for Chrysler, but he built an empire. What drove him?
1: I think what, what he says, what drove him was his family, that as his family grew, um, he felt an enormous responsibility. But since the day I knew him, and even the stories I heard about him before, he had an enormous amount of confidence. And he did not go to college. And he, when he was traveling around in baseball, when he was playing, on the off days, he would go look for pizza places. And he didn't find a whole lot of pizza places because most people thought pizza was a fad. But when he did find them, he just was always very enamored with that product.
0: First of all, how long did your dad play baseball? I I was not aware of that.
1: He played in the farm system and then he got hurt. And then um, Harvey Keen came along, but he uh, for a short time, you know, not very long. But he did get a signing bonus from the Tigers, which is just so ironic that he, you know, (laughs) many years later, he ended up buying the team. But he just was a very confident person. He was an excellent salesman. He sold door to door. And he told me that's where he really learned about sales and marketing. Uh, And he was very creative. And I think probably the biggest thing, Ron, is he was a huge risk taker. He had um, an enormous risk
0: tolerance. I mean, to the point where he would like take a second mortgage out on the house, that kind of risk.
1: Well, he he was the kind of guy that would sign a big contract for a player. Um, He he would do anything to win, so he'd go over the top. Now, of course, my mother is an incredibly astute businesswoman, and she was the balance to him. Um, She was much more conservative, and so together, they were a very good team.
0: And that's a great segue because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your mom because when people look at what you've done, you know they your dad you know created little Caesars. But people don't really focus on, well, your mom was extraordinarily important. What role did she, I mean, she raised seven kids, which is just an inordinate amount of work. But what role did she play in your opinion in helping your dad, grow the business, even though she probably didn't have the same business skills that your dad had.
1: she had, they they both had unbelievable business skills. They were just very different. So the role that she played, she, she was, she's very astute financially. And it's so interesting again, because she did not go to college, but she's brilliant with numbers. And, um, she was that check and balance. My father was very much the entrepreneur much more so in that day, like a true entrepreneur, really self-made. And sometimes that word gets thrown around a little bit. Um, but she would be a great balance to him. So quickly, I can tell you a story that when they first open, which answers your question, when they open their first store, a customer walked in, my dad's at the front, and they order a fish dinner, it gives them the fish dinner, you're our first fish dinner, I'm going to give it to you for free, gives it to him for free. My mom kind of looks at him. Second customer walks in, orders a shrimp dinner. You're our first shrimp dinner. I'm gonna give it to you for free. Gives it to him for free. Third guy comes in, he orders a pizza. You're our first pizza order. My mom interjects, that'll be 335. Thank you very much, sir. And that's really the story of them as they grew their businesses and became much bigger. That was always the way it was, (laughs) if that makes sense.
0: No, it does. And it's a remarkable story. I mean, how much you guys, I don't know of a family that has done more for a city than your family. Um, I want to circle back to family offices. You know, you set it up um, five years or so ago. The problem many family offices have is that in general, it's it's very fragmented and you work in silos, right? You've got your family office and you do what you do. How do you navigate the world of collaborating and meeting other like-minded families who don't have an agenda other than where you could share ideas, share deal flow, and somebody you could have as a trusted partner, or, and to bounce things off of? How, how do you develop those relationships, and is that important?
1: Well, it, at the, for the family office professionals, they go to a lot of different workshops and they do interact with a lot of different families when it comes to investments and best practices. Um, I love being able to meet with other family members and talk about family business and family services and family offices, And generally it, it has to be more structured and so Uh, I would encourage people just to look for those resources. And there are many out there, Tiger 21 being one of them. um, But there are others that you're able to do that. Um, I find that with most relationships, Ron, it has to be natural uh, and has to come natural and that uh, the best relationships I enjoy are the ones that I meet, you know, kind of on a very natural basis. And it isn't it isn't kind of manufactured. Um, it's hard to do sometimes. Sometimes banks will bring you together, but it's a work in progress, let's say.
0: Right. And at the end of the day, the banks, and there's nothing wrong with it, but they have an agenda that they want to bring the families together, but they ideally want you those families to deposit money or invest with those banks.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right.
0: So- you. You know, we started the conversation with Tiger 21 and I kind of want to end it with that um, because again, it is an extraordinary organization. One of the interesting things is, and I spoke to Tim Daniels, the CEO of Tiger 21, and we are going to be launching a family office initiative for Tiger 21 uh, coming up probably in the first quarter of 21, which I'm really excited about because I'll be involved. And I just think it's it makes so much sense for Tiger because of the infrastructure they've created. And I think they could really help a lot of family offices. So through your lens, you have a family office, what would you want to see an organization like Tiger 21 do create? What content? What what could they do to add value to what you do?
1: I think that there could be multiple things and I'm so excited to hear about that. I think that is just wonderful.
0: I was very happy myself.
1: Yes, I think that um, first and foremost with relationships amongst families and, and brokering different families uh, so that as you indicated earlier, people can get to know other, fa- you know, you can get to know other families and kind of compare notes and share best practices. I think that secondly, resources, Um, You talked about, you know, how how do you determine services and and when you meet certain vendors, let's say, um, I think the best in class, it would be very helpful, you know, to be able to learn more about that and that as as to what resources are available. Uh, Third, I think costs and comparing notes on fees and what people are paying for what. Um, I also think it could be interesting to explore any kind of shared service that could potentially lower fees, depending on what the area uh, is for the family office. Uh, And probably lastly, um, thinking about the next generations and how to prepare them and kind of learning from the previous generation, okay, how'd it go, what worked, what didn't work, uh, and then being that much better for the next generation to prepare them to kind of offset those, those, you know, those not so great statistics that you articulated earlier.
0: Yeah, no, and I'm super excited for Tiger 21 to be doing this, so I think it'll be wonderful. Um, last question I, I'd have for you, and again, this has been terrific, and I, thank you for for agreeing to do this, because again, you're, you and your family have just done so much um, for Detroit, for philanthropy, etc., you grew up with um, an extraordinarily successful dad and mom, right? You, They did, they created everything pretty much themselves and people from the outside looking in, it's sometimes difficult or challenging to see, well, what's that like? I mean, and it's neither good nor bad. It's just different. What was the biggest, what's been the hardest part for you grown up in such a successful family from both a philanthropic standpoint from you know what they've accomplished monetarily owning two sports teams what's the big what's been the biggest challenge for you
1: i think probably um so, well I, I was interviewed once by a reporter and they said you know what is, how have you changed and i answered i don't think we've changed or i've changed i think the way people react to us sometimes changes and um, I think as the businesses grew, but probably the the toughest uh, part was once we bought the sports teams, that catapults you into a different arena, a very public arena. And so I think the biggest adjustment was getting used to being in the public eye, uh, watching my father in the public eye, uh, sometimes being heavily critiqued, depending on how the teams were performing. Uh, So it's a real adjustment to develop a thicker skin uh, when you have businesses that operate in the public.
0: Did you or anyone in your family have any interest in ever getting involved in politics?
1: Uh, No, I'm probably the one that would have the appetite more for that. I'm an elected official right now, a public uh, elected official statewide in Michigan. I'm uh, chair of the board of regents of the University of Michigan, and that is an elected position. Uh, but my parents and most, if I can speak for most of my family members, I don't think they really had an appetite for politics.
0: Well, it's a different, uh, it's a different world today. Yeah, it sure is. Well, Denise, this has been terrific. Um, I can't thank you enough for being on this. You've been a fantastic guest. And if people want to, you know, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do it? Or if they want to talk about philanthropy or anything like that?
1: Just email, just email me at dillich at gmail.com. I have so enjoyed this Ron. Thank you for having me and all of the kind things that you've said about our family. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you. And thank your mom and dad for raising a great daughter. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.